I hope you're familiar with uh, the wonderful volume, The Valley of Vision, which I think is one of the finest things Banner of Truth has published, along with the unexpurgated version of Pilgrim's Progress. And I thought what I would do before our, our first session in the morning is use the very end of the Valley of Vision. These are prayers, a collection of Puritan prayers and devotions, and uh, use the, the prayers, in this case, third day morning. It's Tuesday morning, and the prayer is God, Creator, and Controller. So uh, please uh, join with me as I use uh, the, this portion of, of uh, the Valley of Vision for our opening prayer. Let's pray. Most high God, the universe, with all its myriad creatures, is yours, made by your word, upheld by your power, and governed by your will. But you are also the Father of mercies, the God of all grace, the bestower of all comfort, the protector of the saved. You have been mindful of us. You've visited us. You've preserved us. You've given us a goodly heritage, the Holy Scripture the joyful gospel, the savior of souls. And so this morning we come to you in Jesus' name and we make mention of his righteousness only. We plead his obedience and sufferings who magnified the law both in its precepts and penalty and made it honorable. May we be justified by his blood, saved by his life, joined to his spirit. Let us take up his cross and follow him May the agency of your grace prepare us for your dispensations. Make us willing that you should choose our inheritance and determine what we shall retain or lose, suffer, or enjoy. If blessed with prosperity, may we be free from its snares and use but not abuse its advantages. May we patiently and cheerfully submit to those afflictions which are necessary when we are tempted to wander, hedge up our way. Excite in us abhorrence of sin. Wean us from the present evil world. Assure us that we shall at last enter Emmanuel's land where none is ever sick and where the sun will always shine. You can spell that S-U-N or S-O-N. Turning your Bibles, please, to Mark chapter 4. I want you to know that now, this is not a meeting of the Evangelical Theological Society, folks. I realize that, and while the material in Pilgrim's Progress can be very sobering, I do want it to be a fun and profitable and enjoyable for you. And so um, you will find that a lot of what we'll be doing here We'll be connected with what we often call practical Christian living. Uh, we'll be dealing with the slew of despond, and I've called, subtitled that Biblical Counseling 101. Uh, we'll be dealing with the subject of rest. I'm convinced more and more, uh, both from the scriptures, the life of our Lord, that we've got to give more attention to rest in our lives. Uh, we'll talk about church life. We'll be talking about the Lord's Day in these morning sessions. Uh, not all at once. Uh, of course, Vanity Fair, that you're all interested. Isn't it interesting that the magazine is named after that phrase that Bunyan coined, Vanity Fair, although it doesn't have the same view of Vanity Fair that Bunyan did, to say the least. Uh, we're going to take time to deal with depression. 
um, from Doubting Castle. So we'll deal a little bit with the subject of depression. But now it's people that you meet on the way. Mark chapter 4, and, and where Jesus has given the parable of the sower and the purpose of the parables. And now he's giving the explanation of the parable of the sower, beginning at verse 14 in Mark 4. The sower sows the seed. And that seed is, of course, the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And or but they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. When then tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that are sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. The kinds of people you meet on the way from Pilgrim's Progress. As Christian is fleeing from the city of destruction, the neighbors also come out to see him run. And as he ran, some mocked, others threatened, and some cried for him to return. Now, among those that did so, there were two that were determined to fetch him back by force. The name of the one was obstinate, and the other was pliable. Now, by this time, the man that is Christian was a good distance ahead of them. However, they were resolved to pursue him, and this they did. And in a little while, they overtook him. Close encounters of the first kind. Christian has fled from the city of destruction. He has a deep personal conviction uh, that everlasting life is what he must pursue with all of his being. And he says, I have set my hand to the plow and I will not look back. But there are two early companions of his who come to him, and they represent two main classes of those who hear the word of God. One are people who are hardened, that's obstinate. The other are those who are either somewhat softened or, quite frankly, are just plain soft. And those are the ones that Bunyan designates as pliable. And just a little note about Bunyan. John Bunyan was a profound theologian, though he was never formally trained in theology, and he knew his Bible. Uh, John Owen marveled, the great Puritan marveled. He was a contemporary of Bunyan, and he marveled not only at Bunyan's theology, although he disagreed with some of it, uh, but his knowledge of the Bible. And he, not, he marveled at the way Bunyan could preach. He said that he would be willing to give up all of his learning for the ability to preach one sermon like that tinker, which Bunyan was. And Bunyan, though, unlike, I'm afraid, many theologians in our day, he was as much a student of humanity 
as he was of the theology of the Bible. And so Bunyan understood, and all pastors should be students of, of man and women and boys and girls. And so Bunyan's insight into humanity is really quite fascinating. So we're calling this close encounters of the first kind. Let's deal, number one, with companion one who is obstinate, otherwise known, I think we call him in our culture, Mr. Self-Will. Obstinate has a sister. Her name is called Stubborn as a mule. You can read a reference to her in Psalm 32 and verse 9. And he has a brother, and his brother's name is Pigheaded. And one person wrote, as he commented, about obstinate. This is so interesting, especially for pastors and elders as we've worked in church life over the years. This kind of sends chills up your spine. This person writing, about obstinance says, nothing is more like firm conviction than simple obstinacy. Plots and parties in the state, heresies and divisions in the church proceed from it. From what? Firm conviction. And as Orthodox Presbyterians, we have firm convictions. Just be careful, it's not simple obstinacy, right? Okay, and so, so, so this is what Bunyan is describing. Now, let, let's, let's uh, parse obstinate a little bit. How does a person become an obstinate? These people that you meet in the way, notice your, your notes, obstinate in his 21st century relatives. Well, in some cases, if not in every case, it begins with, with just plain human reasoning. In this case, obstinate says, what? You're going to leave our friends and our comforts. You are going to leave your friends and your comforts behind you. And obstinates will come in different ways. I notice in this area, as in our area, very strong ethnic communities, whether it be Hispanic or whether it be Vietnamese or Chinese. In our area, strong Italian communities and Chinese and Korean and so on. And there's nothing wrong in those things. Those are, those are wonderful things. They're part of the great salad bowl of the Christian faith. But Jesus warned against loving father and mother more than me. And when people take their own uh, family or cultural traditions uh, that can put them at odds with the Word of God, or members of the family themselves who can put them at odds with the Word of God, and they put those things over what God says in His Word, you have the makings of an obstinate. And I'll tell you the one that as a pastor always got to me. That's why I can't stand the term Mother's Day and Father's Day. It's the Lord's Day our culture calls Mother's Day or the Lord's Day that our culture calls Father's Day. It is the Sabbath day, and you're going to learn to cherish that word, that phrase, as we go through the week. And it is the Lord's Day until it's Mother's Day. When Mom or on Father's Day, Dad become, let's face it, more important than Christ and the Father and the Spirit and their worship. Now, see, there's an absolute saying when people violate the Lord's Day because of Mother's Day or Father's Day, they're not Christians. But you see how easy it is to put our human reasoning above what the Word of God says. Personal peace and affluence. I'll follow Jesus fully so long as he doesn't interfere with my business. I'll follow the Lord Jesus as my Lord 
but I don't want to take too much time on Sunday because I've got my own things I enjoy doing. And that, brothers and sisters, human reasoning is the beginning of an obstinate. Rather, as Christians, we say, well, rather than personal peace and affluence, we are seeking a better country. Anything in this life is defiled, and we are looking for an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled. But Pilgrim here, as he's called in Pilgrim's Progress, because according to Bunyan, he's not yet a Christian. Um, he, he's got the spirit in him, and that's an impulse uh, in order to seek something better. Okay, so that's the way obstinate begins, with human reasoning. And then for other obstinates, it's the challenge of skepticism. That's big up in our area in New York, as it is in California as well. The challenge of skepticism and obstinate. Do you really, really believe those things? Come on. Put away that foolish book. And I find it interesting and sad that increasingly in many churches that, that maybe with a commendable desire to reach out, I'm not criticizing that, but what they'll do is they'll give short shrift to what the Word of God says because they realize the people that they're seeking think the Bible is really kind of foolish. That's a huge mistake because it gives rise to supporting the challenge of skepticism. Or people who are obstinate who begin to attack Christians. You're crazy. You're arrogant. You're unreasonable. Here's the big one in our day. You are intolerant. Intolerant. Or sick in the head. Or foolish. Or religious fanatics. There was a theory that obstinate in Pilgrim's Progress was the child of Mr. Spare the Rod and Spoil the Child, as one person has put it. But you see, that's, that's something of, of the making of the people in our day who are obstinate. One of the reasons we should love and esteem children in the church is that they are God's gifts to us to teach us that we need to grow down. I love my dear Baptist brothers and sisters. A number of you have commented on the series on baptism that I did or the debate with James White. And I love James. He's a dear friend, but he's got it wrong on baptism. But here's what I love to tell my Baptist friends, New York way. I say, you know, you got it all wrong with your view of faith. You really do, because you commend a mature faith or some kind of faith like that that is necessary for a person to become a member of the church. And the problem is that the Lord Jesus didn't do that. Jesus took a real little child, and incidentally, it wasn't a child with a person with childlike faith, the way our dear Baptist friends want to picture it. So, you know, go to the, go to the book again. <laughs> he takes a little child, and he says to those of us who are adults, you need to grow down, not be childish. But he says, unless you have a faith like this little child can enter the kingdom, What's the faith of a little child? They believe what their parents tell them. That's why you better let your yes be yes and your no be no with your children. They believe that. They trust that. Is that the faith that you have? Otherwise, with your elevating your mind above the word of God, your skeptical spirit about all things that are affirmed, or perhaps your love of just being critical of different people. Could you be on the way to be an obstinate? I hope you're not. Now, there's the opposite. 
companion that we meet along the way. And this one is pliable, pliable. We would call pliable in our culture today, Mr. Go with the Flow. Incident, I'm going to try to do these things so there's a little bit of time for your questions at the end. I appreciate you listening, and, but I love your questions too. Anyway, pliable, Mr. Go with the Flow. Here's his character. Pliable, he's nice. I can't stand the word nice. Once I had a person who kept using the word nice, and I said, I have an assignment for you. If you're going to use the word nice all the time, please try to define it. He was German, very precise. He came back to me after two weeks, probably being in, in spasm of angst because he had been charged by his pastor to define the word nice. And he came to him, and he, I can't imitate his beautiful German accent, but he said, he said, Pastor, he said, I'm not going to use the word nice anymore. He said, why not? He says, because you're right. You can't really define it. So, so good. If you can't define it, don't use it, okay? So, but anyway, but he is nice. He feels bad for pilgrim or for Christian. He's not personally convinced of what pilgrim believes. Do you believe the words of your book are certainly true? And it's very interesting. He never reads the Bible for himself, but he will have Pilgrim or Christian read the book to him. He wants to know what's in the book. And this is beautiful, folks. This, this is one, in, in my opinion, this is, this is really the hallmark of what faith is. Um, when the, when uh, Paul gives a summary of piety, he says, if therefore you have been raised with Christ, which is what it is to be uh, born again, to be a new creature, he says, keep seeking the things that are above where Christ is. And, and so Pliable says, well, what is it about this stuff in the book that, that, that really intrigues you? And, and Christian says, well, there's an endless kingdom promise there to be inhabited and everlasting life to be given to us so that we may inhabit that kingdom forever. There are crowns of glory to be given to us and garments that will make us shine like the sun in the firmament of heaven. There will be no more crying or sorrow for he who is the owner of that place will wipe all tears from our eyes. There we will be with the seraphim and cherubim creatures that will dazzle your eyes to look on them and there also you meet with the thousands and ten thousands that have traveled ahead of us to that place none of them are unkind but rather loving and holy everyone walking in the sight of god everyone standing in his presence with everlasting acceptance in a word there we shall see the elders with their golden crowns there we shall see the holy virgins with their golden harps there we shall see men who were by this present world cut in pieces, burnt in flames, eaten by beasts, drowned in the sea because of the love that they maintained for the Lord of the place, all well and clothed with the garment of immortality. Now notice that Christian regards pliable as a Christian. He says, we will, we will, we will. Pliable professed to be a follower of the Lord, although he was pliable. And what's beautiful in the picture of Christian is what ought to be beautiful in us. Folks, the Christian faith isn't the conclusion of a mathematical equation. It's joy. I've come that you might have life. I've come that your joy might be filled. Are you joyful over those things? And, and, and Christian is. 
And he flows out of him. It is ought to flow out of us. Here's the problem with pliable. He has no root in grace. Here's where his roots are. His roots are in friendship. He likes Christian. And Christian's different than other people in the city of destruction. He's attracted to him. And Christian young women, the greatest beauty is not the beauty that you see placarded on the billboards here in the L.A. area. It's the beauty of godliness. Over the years as a pastor, especially having worked with people over 35 years in one place, you see with Christian women who have lived fleeing the wrath to come and have followed the Lord faithfully, there is a beauty in them. Even if by the world's standards they may be regarded as somewhat homely, there's a beauty in them that is absolutely captivating. And young ladies, the men around you, even if they're not Christians, will see that in you. And they will covet not your faith that makes you beautiful, but you. And that's why you have to be so, so careful. And this person may want to put his roots in friendship with you, but your roots have to be in Christ. This person's roots were not in Christ. Pliable's roots also were in his feelings. These were exciting things. He was caught up in these things. And see, here as Christians, we can make this, oh, we don't want anybody to be caught up in the excitement of this. It might be false faith. So God forbid that we should act like we are really joyful about what we believe. Don't make that error. Be joyful about what we believe. But there's going to be people swept up in all of that foam of the joy of the gospel, but not the gospel itself, and that's pliable. His roots may even have been in the church as a social institution, but not in the Lord of the church, who is the only one that can make you grow. That's a scary thing. His roots may have been in family life and a family that wanted to follow the Lord. But he or she did not. But he loves the family. And you can put on the chameleon-like disguise of faith or roots. And here's the big one. We're going to come to it in just a moment. Roots in civility. The Christians are to be civil people. But civility is not equal to Christianity. One person said civil people are the world's saints. And some people will be satisfied with civility rather than real faith. I'll give you a cautionary tale when we come to the end of this section. What's missing with pliable? Pliable has no sense of his sin. There's no burden on his back. In fact, at some point he says, hey, we're not going fast enough to this place. Let's really go. Chris says, whoa, wait a minute. Oh, oh. I got this burden on my back and it slows me down. But he doesn't have that burden. He has no knowledge of his own heart. He has no felt need of a savior. And he is not, if I could put it this way, riveted to the book. 
Barry Horner, who has probably the world's foremost authority on Pilgrim's Progress, had this very perceptive comment. Unlike struggling Christian, pliable perceives his pilgrimage as a happy jaunt along a sprint track rather than the dangerous traversing of enemy territory. And that's pliable. Now, we will come back to pliable in a little bit. Someone else has summarized this because pliable is not going to last. But someone else has, has very, very, very pointedly said this, learning our lesson from pliable. We must open our hearts to our religion. And you say, well, how can you do that? Only God can change our heart. That's true, but God often speaks in terms of human responsibility. Only the Lord can circumcise our hearts. Jeremiah says, you circumcise your own hearts. How do you do that? You pray, and you ask that God give you a softened heart, and you seek to put to death those things that would make your heart hard. We must open our hearts to our religion. We must have the inward soil broken up freely and deeply. Its roots must penetrate our inner being. We must take to ourselves in silence and in sincerity the Bible's words of judgment with its words of hope, its sternness with its encouragement, its denunciations with its promises, its requirements with its offers, its absolute intolerance of sin with its inconceivable and divine long-suffering towards sinners. Isn't that beautiful? You take the whole Bible and all of it should impact you. Okay, so there's, there's Christian and pliable. But now, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to weave together another one of the characters. I'm going to just put, you know, if I'm preaching an expository series through a a book of the Bible, well, then I can, I can go without using notes. But for something like this, I have to have the notes or else all I'd be doing is rambling hopelessly, and that would not be fair to you, <laughs> and it wouldn't, wouldn't be honoring to the Lord. Okay, so there's another character who comes up. And um, for all the obstinates and pliables, uh, there are far more of these. Christian now is walking all alone, because this section actually comes after the slew of despond, but we're blending these things here. He noticed someone else in the distance on his way across the field coming to meet him. And so it happened that they met just when their paths crossed. The name of this particular gentleman was Mr. Worldly Wise Man, who resided in the town of Carnal Policy, a very large community not far removed from Christian's former hometown, City of Destruction. So this man met Christian and acted as if he knew of his coming beforehand. The reason was that pilgrims setting out from the City of Destruction were usually the subject of intense gossip that spread to many distant towns. Therefore, because Mr. Worldly Wise Man had some inkling of his coming, he was easily able to observe Christian's laborious approach. He still has the burden on his back, his sighs and groans and the like, 
and thus engage him in sympathetic conversation. Mr. Worldly Wise Man, the young man that I mentioned last night, um, early on in his Christian life, met a Mr. Worldly Wise Man who told that young man that he also had had his phase when he too had come to faith in Christ, but he'd outgrown that. And uh, this Mr. Worldly Wise Man took this man that I know very well aside and did everything he could to convince him, you don't really need to live the strict life of a Christian. Mr. Worldly Wise Man, get rid of your burden, he would say to him, or you won't enjoy God and his blessing. I mean, Mr. Worldly Wise Man is a very religious person. He really wants you to be happy. Doesn't God want you to be happy? God doesn't want you to have that burden on your back. God wants you to have peace of mind. And when you have peace of mind, you will gain the blessing of God. Christian is somewhat perplexed by this, and he speaks to Mr. Worldly Wise Man of Evangelist, who has met him. Evangelist. Evangelist was the one who told him, keep his eye looking ahead, look for the wicked gate, look for the light, don't go to the left or the right, and be careful of the kinds of people you might meet in the way. But Mr. Worldly Wise Man knows all about this, and he very kindly nicely explains to Christian that that man's advice is dangerous. You, he says, will be miserable all of your life if you follow the advice of that man who directed you. Listen to me. Since I am older than you, as you proceed along the way ahead, you're likely to experience wearisomeness painfulness, hunger, perils, nakedness, sword, lions, dragons, darkness. Incidentally, you read the full Pilgrim's Progress, he got it all laid out here. And in a word, death. And what else? These things are certainly true, since they've been confirmed by the testimonies of many pilgrims. So why should a person so carelessly place himself in danger by paying attention to the advice of a stranger? There is, says Mr. Worldly Wise Man, a better and an easier way. But before, before he goes any further, notice what Christian says. He stops him. And he says, why, sir, 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 this burden on my back is more terrible to me than all of those things that you've mentioned. Wearisomeness, painfulness, hunger, perils, nakedness, sword, lions, dragons, darkness. This burden of sin weighs far more heavily on me than any of these earthly consequences of following the Lord. Powerful insight. No, 
to give careful thought, I don't care what I meet with in the way, as long as I can eventually be delivered from my burden. But Mr. Worldly Wise Man's not listening. He says to him, young man, I have a much better and an easier way for you. There is a village called Carnal Policy. Its mayor's name is Legality, and his son's name is Civility. And they have great skill in removing the kinds of burdens like the ones that you have on your back. Plus, carnal policy is just a great place to live. The people are kind. The people are generous. They smile. They don't go along with big burdens on their backs. They're not enslaved to a particular book. They really, really are free to live the way they want. And they are very, very moral. Morality in an immoral culture is very, very appealing to an unregenerate mind and heart. And so... Christian says, well, I'll give it a try. And in one of the most masterful images, I think, in Pilgrim's Progress, Christian follows after the village of morality. Listen, listen to this description. So Christian departed from his present course. Incidentally, later he'd be skeeched at by evangelists. But we won't go there right now. He departed from his present course so as to head toward Mr. Legality's house for help. But notice that when he had drawn very close to the hill on which village morality was located, it seemed so high that it appeared to almost hang over him and threaten to crush him. Being paralyzed with fear, he stopped rather than go any further. As a result, he didn't know what to do. Also, his burden now seemed much heavier than when he was formerly in the way. And there also came flashes of fire erupting out of the hill that made Christian fear that he would be burned. And for this reason, he was terrified and began to sweat and tremble in his body. And now he was sorry that he had taken Mr. Worldly Wise Man's advice. That's his approach to the village of carnal policy. He couldn't climb it. And there was fire. What's the meaning? The Bible is very explicit that if you want to be right with God by your morality, you have to obey God absolutely perfectly at every point in your life, in all of your thoughts, in all of your words, in all of your deeds, all of the time. That's what we technically call by nature being under a covenant of works. And that's what Christian has come up against. There's a whole book in the Bible about it. It's called Galatians, in which Paul says, you want to be justified by the law? Okay, try it. You've got to do everything perfectly. And, of course, he's speaking facetiously 
but seriously. Because, see, Christian at this point is an incarnation of what the Galatians were, having begun in the Spirit, trying to be made perfect in the flesh. And so there is the ministry of evangelist who comes and says to him, remember, if even an angel from heaven preaches something other than the gospel that you have heard, that you are declared righteous by faith alone in Christ alone, and your sins are forgiven by faith alone in the atonement of Christ alone, let him be anathema. And he gives the very, very serious warnings to Christian at this point. Why are you in the way? Now let's, let's talk about Mr. Worldly Wise Man for a minute, and then we'll wrap this first section up. This is the world's view of religion. Whether the world is dressed in Buddhism, whether the world is dressed in some kind of adherence to the practices of yoga, or whatever it would be, all of that, in fact, basically any sub-truly Christian religion is a religion of morality. It's the world's view of religion, and all of these people really are part of one church. It's the first church of morality, and its doctrine is human ability. And brothers and sisters, we're not talking about the eternal state of people whose theology may not be exactly what it ought to be. Jesus was very compassionate toward misled sheep. But Jesus excoriated the false teachers. And any brand of so-called Christianity that mixes a stitch of human obedience with the obedience of Christ is not the biblical gospel, period. And this is exactly what Mr. Worldly Wise Man was wanting to do. His doctrine was the doctrine of human ability. You don't need to bother with the Bible. You can let the reverends, let them be bothered with it, but you don't need to be bothered with it. And what did he do to Christian? He led him out of the way. Because to substitute our own morality for the righteousness of Christ is to go in exactly the opposite direction of which God would have you go. And any religion that tones down the seriousness of human sin, the wages of which is death, will inevitably erode the doctrine of the atonement of Christ in which Christ took the punishment of hell, of an infinite hell, for all the sins of all of his people. 